Welcome to Writer Spark, the podcast with tips and tricks about fiction writing. I'm your host, Melissa Bourbon, national best-selling author, developmental fiction editor, writing coach and instructor, and founder of Writer Spark Academy. Wherever you are on your writing path, Writer Spark has tips, tricks, and lessons for you. If you enjoy the Writer Spark podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you might be listening from. It helps others find our content. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining me. Today, my guest is V.M. Burns, also known as Valerie. She is the author of four different mystery series with a fifth one coming up that she's going to talk to us about, including the Mystery Bookshop, the Dog Club, the R.J. Franklin, and the brand new Baker Street Mysteries. She's so accomplished. She's also an adjunct professor at the popular fiction program at Seton Hill University in Pennsylvania, and she has a day job like so many of uh, we writers do. Get ready for Valerie Burns. Today our topic is writing diverse characters in fiction, which applies to any kind of fiction, not just mysteries. And it's such an important conversation. So settle in, grab something tasty, and get ready to ignite your writer spark. Valerie, thank you so much for being here with me today on my podcast. Thank you for having me. And I'm so excited to talk about your books. Um, I like to start with an author's origin story. I always think it's so interesting to hear how other people got into this crazy business that we've chosen (laughs) to get into. So what was your path to publishing like? Well, um, you know, I, I have a lot of friends who they had dreamed of being a writer their whole life and you know, they wanted to, you know, they have stories they wrote as children. That's not my story. I don't know that I ever necessarily dreamed of being a writer because I kind of thought writers don't make any money. (laughs) True. (laughs) I know, right? So I thought I want to do something else. I just want to read books. So I read a lot. I read a lot of um, cozy mysteries I fell in love with cozies. I love Agatha Christie. I'm a huge Agatha Christie fan. And, you know, over the years, as I was writing or reading books, I thought, boy, I wish somebody would write a book about, I wish someone would write a book about, you know, I'd love to read a book about. And I just had this long list that just kept growing and growing and growing. And no one was writing these books. And, you know, one day I thought, well, maybe I should try my hand at writing those books because if I want to read it, maybe somebody else does too. And um, so I started writing a mystery because those are what I love. Mm-hmm. And that's what I, you know, re- read the majority of the time. And I realized it's a lot harder than it looks, you know, when you read a book and it, you know, you can finish it in a day or two days and you're like, boy, that was fast. Or, you know, especially when you read and you're like, well, they should have done it like this, or I don't know why they did that. That that's, you know, whatever. But, you know, when you actually have to sit down and put a beginning, a middle and an end and, you know, get 70,000, you know, words, I, um, wrote my book and, you know, actually I, I first started trying to write screenplays and I thought if I could just sell a screenplay, sell a script for to quit my job and then I can write. And, you know, that's, if, if you, 
ever are just waiting for the planets to perfectly align, waiting to hit the lotto <laughs> so you can become a writer, you know, good luck to you. You know, that's generally not the way it works. And that was not my path. Right. I so, doubt that it's really anybody's path. Maybe a, right. one or two lucky people. <laughs> exactly. It's about the same, you know, chances that you have of, I don't know, getting hit by lightning or something or, or get, you know, hitting the Powerball is, you know, you, it's work. You have to, you know, work at it. And I realize if something's important, you take the time and you make time for it and you just do it. Not only making time for the craft itself or for whatever it is you're interested in, but to learn how to do it and to do it well and to continue to grow, especially in the field that we're in, in writing, you know, we were never just complacent and saying, okay, I'm, I'm a writer and this is as good as I'm ever going to get. I mean, I think that most of us try to continue to grow and, and just become better at what we do. Exactly. I mean, I have bookshelves and bookshelves full of, you know, craft books on, you know, writing, how to write, how to write the first five pages, how to write the first 10 pages, how to write, you know, a damn good mystery, how to write, you know, <laughs> fiction, how to write, you know, killer fiction, how to, there's just how to write cozy mysteries. And you keep reading and reading and reading because you want to get better. You want to learn and develop and grow. So I read, I got a lot of books. I went to workshops and I got so many rejection letters. I could wallpaper a room. Oh no. Yeah. I'm with you. So I decided I'm missing something. And I decided to research writers that were successful that I admired to see what did they do. Mm -hmm. And one of those writers was Victoria Thompson, a huge fan of her writing. And so I look in the back of her book at her bio and I read that she's a professor at Seton Hill University in Greensburg, Pennsylvania. Which you are too. Well, now at the time, I I already had one master's degree. I didn't want another one. I didn't want to go back to school. I just wanted to maybe audit one of her classes and learn. Mm -hmm. And it really wasn't that far from where I was living at the time. I lived in Indiana and I couldn't audit. So I ended up actually applying to the program <laughs> and I got in and I got my master's in writing popular fiction an MFA from Seton Hill. And I got to um, learn from people like Victoria Thompson, all the um, people, all the instructors are published authors. And so for me, that helped me to understand even when I was getting rejection letters and for the few rejection letters that you get where they give you feedback. Right. <laughs> I did, I realized I didn't know what they were talking about. I didn't understand, you know, I didn't understand things about deeper POV or, you know, all of the concepts that agents and editors are looking for. And I didn't know how to do what they wanted me to do. For me going, I don't think that every writer needs an MFA to be a published author. I do not. I think that um, for me, that's what worked. So my path after I had written a book and been, and been not successful with getting it traditionally published, I 
decided to pursue additional education and I went and got my MFA and that really unlocked because it made sense then mm -hmm. it, you know the things that they're saying it made sense and I was able to um, write my thesis and you know actually my thesis novel is not the first book I sold I wrote another book after I graduated because I had two ideas of books that I wanted to write and the second one was The Plot is Murder which was the first book that I got published and that was the book that I got nominated for the Agatha Award as you write you learn yes I think my current books are better than my first books and yeah I think you probably have the same thing right Yes, absolutely. In fact, I, uh, you know, I'm getting the rights back to my very first series and I'm thinking I need to go back and really revise them because I'm a better writer now, 29 books under my belt. And, you know, so I would say the last half are probably a lot stronger than those first five, you know? So yeah, I, I think that we are always growing and, you know, as a teacher, I taught middle school and high school, and now I run Writer's Park Academy and I have online courses. And as a teacher, you're always learning too. And that's one of the things that I love actually about teaching is that it forces me to be more critical, to think more critically about the writing process or whatever it is I'm teaching, but now I'm just teaching writing. So to think more critically about the writing process and how to teach it. And, and I have to really understand it in order to be able to teach it. And so that's, to me, that's a real perk because it's another way that I get to continually keep learning and, and I think growing in my craft. Yeah. I, I have, since you mentioned that I, I'm in the, I'm a instructor now in the writing popular fiction program at Seton Hill, which I am. And I find that it, and it's a low residency program, so we're only on campus twice a year for, you know, one week, twice a year. And mm -hmm. I, I'm inspired by um, the students who are writing new things and they're wanting to get published and they have all these ideas. And some of them are so far-fetched and I'm like, wow, how creative. That's awesome. But uh, every time I go to residency or I read um, stories, I'm like, that's so creative and different. And that's, you know, it just inspires me to want to be more creative and um, to push the limits, I guess, yeah. of yeah. not only the genre, but also my own uh, writing. And, mm -hmm. and what I do and, and how I do it. You know, mm -hmm. sometimes it's not just um, about, you know, making it more complicated. But, um, you know, with The Plot is Murder, that was, um, for me, it was a way that I was stretching myself. So prior to that book, I'd always written in first person. Mm-hmm. And it's easier in first person because you're in one person's head and you don't have to think about, you know, the others. And I wanted to try writing in third. And so in that book, there's a story within a story. I re so, Yes. So complicated. And I don't know how you did that. That's, yeah, it's really cool. Well, it was, you know, it was great. You know, I thought this is the kind of book I'd want to read. So I didn't think about at the time how hard it would be to write it, wanted to read something like that. So I thought the the story that Samantha Washington, my main character, is in first, but the story she's writing is in third. 
I could stretch myself a little bit and try something new without having to write an entire full book. And, you know, and, third and not only that, but it's historical. What she's writing is historical. So yeah. you have the whole added complexity of writing, okay, first person contemporary and then third person historical. And I know from talking to you, so we know each other that, that you're a big, um, what do you call it? Fan of England. <laughs> what, what's uh, what is it? Anglophile, I guess. Yeah. Or something yeah. like I don't know. But I do. I, I love British history. I love, um, I love the research. I can get lost. I can go down a rabbit hole and spend hours looking up what kind of, uh, you know, I don't know, radio programs were popular in 1939, Great Britain, because they yeah. may not be the same ones. I'm, I can't even tell you how much time I spent trying to understand cricket. You know, <laughs> yeah. I made a reference to somebody playing cricket and I thought, oh, well, I can put some details about cricket in there. Must have spent weeks i actually like researched and watched cricket on tv and then i t i interviewed someone that i know who actually plays cricket and i still don't understand cricket so and all, all of that time for probably one line right exactly it's not <laughs> integral to the plot at all and i eventually just changed it to you know and he plays cricket and i kept going because it didn't matter. I can get lost in it, but it, it is an opportunity to grow and to stretch myself and to learn and develop. And so your point about continuing to grow and develop as a writer, it's a continual process. Learning is not a one-time event. You don't publish a book and say, okay, now I know it all because right. you don't. Yeah, you know, that used to just kill me as a teacher, middle school teacher, high school teacher, and then, you know, having had kids in elementary school and all the way through, writing was taught the years it was tested. And mm. the years it wasn't tested, it wasn't taught. And that killed me because I kept trying to get people to understand in my school you can't learn writing in a year. It's a process that you build upon, you know, and you're continually developing it and you start with these skills and then you add and add and add and add and add. So when it's the same idea with us as writers, we, you know, write this fabulous first book, you know, and our second book is going to be even better, hopefully, ideally, because we're continuing to, you know, to go to workshops and to talk to, you know, I think that the writing community, but in particular, the cozy mystery community, the cozy mystery community is wonderfully accepting and nurturing of one another. You know, I, the people that I've met along the way, you know, my first book came out in 20, in 2008. And I didn't know so much. And all of the people that I met were so generous with their time and yeah. with their knowledge. And, you know, I think that's that's just invaluable. I agree. I have met so many people within the Cozy Mystery community who really try to support and and help. And that's it was such a big difference from screenwriting. When I went to workshops and seminars on screenwriting, it was very closed. Like you, you go to the, you know, you spend a week or, or a day or however long at this workshop and, and you're sitting next to people in line or you're talking to people and, you know, it's like, so what are you writing? And they won't tell you because they're afraid you're going to steal their idea and then they lose out. And I, you know, my very first um, opportunity where I went to a workshop that was both books 
and screenwriting, it was just night and day difference because <laughs> the book people were so open and, you know, hey, what are you writing? I'm writing this book about, you know, President Lincoln and he's going to, you know, slay vampires or whatever it is. And they're like, so what are you doing? And I was just so shocked. Like they're, they're actually telling me what they're writing. Yeah. And, you know, cozy mystery community, it takes it even a step further because, you know, they're volunteering to do blurbs for your book or they're offering you help or, you know, you can mention something like, hey, I need a poison that can kill somebody by the time they get to the first floor in an elevator. And they're like, Hey, you know what? I got one for you. Or I know somebody who works with poisons who can help you, you know, and you can't say things like that to just anybody. Indeed you can't. (laughs) The cozy mystery community. And they are, you know, inviting you to participate in their Facebook groups and their, you know, blogs and, you know, Hey, I got this, you know, group, book warriors, you know, that is going to, um, you know, read and, and we'd like to talk about your book or whatever it is. I have found that the cozy mystery community is just really supportive and that's been great. And I think part of that is, I think you need to, if you want to be a writer, connect with people. Yes. And, you know, networking and and I know most writers I know are introverts, myself included. And so it's a little hard. But if you get involved with either like Sisters in Crime or Mystery Writers of America or um, some other association, there's usually groups where you can ask questions. Um, You can um, people are saying, hey, I have a. I have a a website and I feature different authors every month. Anyone want to take July? (laughs) I'm on a a blog with uh, Mystery Lover's Kitchen and, you know, they have guests every, and you just did one not too long ago. Yes, I did. But, um, you know, it's very inviting and open and that's been wonderful. I think it's been so helpful. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's an amazing community and I'm really happy to be part of it. And, you know, I'm an introvert also. And like you said, so many of us are. And so it's nice to be part of a community of like-minded people, but but people who we can talk about our craft. We can talk about writing till the cows come home because that's what we're passionate about, right? Exactly. All right. So let's jump into um, the topic today. Well, one of the topics, because we're covering a lot of things, but I'd love to talk about creating diversity in our books. And this topic is really important to me. My husband is first generation Mexican-American. My children are mixed, therefore. And when I first started writing, my first character is named Lola Cruz, and I wrote her and her family very much modeled after my husband's family. And I wanted her to be somebody that my daughter in particular, I have one one daughter and four boys, but I wanted somebody that my daughter could really relate to, you know, somebody who really embraced her culture, but also, you know, lives an American life because that's what we do. And um, she doesn't read these books. Now she's 22 because she doesn't like the little bits of romance and sex that mom wrote. (laughs) (laughs) There's, I mean, they're mysteries. They're PI capers. But, you know, anyway, Um, I had a Latina 
uh, editor, actually, who bought this series. And the greatest compliment I think I've ever received is from her. And she said that uh, the way I wrote these characters was more authentic than most of what she's read. And I think that that's because I worked so hard not to use stereotypes, right? I used, I worked so hard to, to just make well-rounded characters of, you know, different cultures and races. And I've continued to, to add characters that are representative of the, the communities. You know, I grew up and born and raised in California. And one of my series is set in uh, central coastal California. California is incredibly diverse, you know, and so I brought in characters to sort of mirror the diversity that is truly exists there, right? And um, you know, but it, but it's it's tricky because you don't want to create stereotypes, and you don't want to, you know, you have to be careful not to offend in any way, and especially, you know, I'm just here a white girl, you know, and do. I don't want, you know, cultural appropriation and all of that, which I think is a bigger factor now with my Lola Cruz series. You know, it wasn't so much then. I didn't think about it. Now I think about it a lot. You know, I don't want anybody to think I'm, you know, capitalizing on their culture kind of thing. So anyway, I'd love to just have this discussion on how do you how do you treat it with respect and how important is it to to create culturally diverse casts of characters in our books and in any books? Yeah, no, I think that um, I think what you said about um, the fact that you um, were in California, which is a very diverse community. And, you know, I have a nephew who lives in New York in Brooklyn, and it's really diverse community. And I think that um, books and television should reflect the real world it should reflect the community so um, there are people of color there are people with different religious beliefs than you know i don't know unless you live on a commune somewhere you're going to encounter people who are a little bit different and i think that those differences will enhance the writing it, it you don't want all of your characters to sound the same or look the same or be the same because it's pretty boring you mm-hmm. want the diversity that exists in the world because of the diversity helps people to see things from a different perspective. Right. And I think that that is important. I think that it's also important to recognize that um, there's not one size fits all. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, character in my um new series my baker street misty series maddie montgomery you know she doesn't represent all black women everywhere you know there are going there's a a vast difference of you know african-american culture there's a difference in latina culture there's a difference in asian culture and you want to be respectful you don't want to create stereotypes. I think that's where you run into problems. Right. Is if you're going, I mean, my first, people ask me sometimes, you know, um, do you feel that people who are not black can write black characters? Like, you know, this is a free country. You can write whatever you want to write. Mm-hmm. But just be prepared that you need to get it right. Yes. So if you don't get it right, if you write stereotypes, 
you're going to get some backlash. Just be prepared for it. Right. And it's really hard if you're not a part of that culture because that culture is very diverse. So you can, you know, write about one person, you know, or, you know, oh, I have a friend who's black who, who read it and that they weren't offended by this word that I used. Mm-hmm. Well, they don't represent all black people everywhere. Right? right. So it can be really, really tricky. And it's definitely something that I recommend. Um, definitely in, incorporating diversity. I think, though, that there are some stories that are best told by the culture that owns that story. So if it's a story about, um, I don't know, Harriet Tubman, right? I would hope that someone who shares that culture can tell it as opposed to someone who is not a part of that culture and doesn't necessarily have those same um, fears and beliefs and um, just history experiences, yeah, yeah, ideas about it, right? Because it's just, it's their a part of their history, their culture, and it really frames a lot of of the mindset and the thinking. So I would just say, be careful, um, be inclusive, and do your research. Because if you get it wrong, that's where the problems are going to come. And um, I think, you know, it's very easy to say, oh, well, I know someone who talks this way, so I'm going to incorporate them. But recognize that, do they talk that way all the time? Did you talk to them? Maybe you just got a snapshot of an event and they were maybe mocking an accent or, you know, using you know, certain phrases. And, you know, the other thing is, you know, even even as a black woman, I'm amazed at how different black culture can be in different parts of the United States. Oh, yeah. And like, and, and I grew up in a medium sized town in the Midwest. So my experiences and, and I grew up with basically a, um, a middle class black family a nuclear family. My parents were married for 52 years. And so, you know, I don't have, I don't necessarily write books about, you know, um, black culture where you have, you know, prostitutes or drug, you know, deals and gangs. That wasn't my reality. So it's like certain, there are people who experience that. And so that's part of their story or their culture. And could I do enough research to maybe get it right? Probably. If I wrote it and I got it right, would I probably get away with it? Yeah. But if I am so totally different from that, then people are going to question my, um, I guess, ability to write it or whether I should write it. So just because you can write it doesn't mean you should. You yeah, should. the authenticity. I know that was one of the big controversies with American Dirt when it came out. Yes. For that yes. very reason. And I don't know. I mean, I kind of have mixed views on 
whether or not she should have written that book. And I, my, we talked about it with my husband's family and, you know, and my husband, he's like, yeah, I mean, if he, he thought it was absolutely fine, if she captured it authentically in his opinion, it's a story that's worth telling, you know, but then there were certainly other people that did not feel that way, you know? So, yeah. So I, I feel like I have to be super careful when I re-release my Lola Cruz series for that reason. You know? Well, you know, I think though that you have the, you know, you definitely have the experience, you know, you have the, the people in your lives that you can write it. And I don't think too many people would question it. Maybe they were, they're always going to be, you know, haters. They're always going to yeah. be haters. So well, you get those no matter what. Um, <laughs> right. But I think, you know, they're going to recognize too, that you are being fair and you're not putting everyone in a stereotypical, you know, box. And I think, I mean, I'm thinking, you know, you brought up the American dirt and I'm thinking about the whole kind of blow up with the um, ro romance writers of America. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that kind of just sort of sunk the whole, the whole organization. Yeah. That was, yeah. that was pretty amazing. So I guess it's, you know, it is very tricky. Mm -hmm. But it's certainly something worth doing. I mean, it, one thing that's interesting, I just submitted a, a book for a new series. And um, I, I included a character who's part of the LGBTQ community. And I hadn't done that. I mean, not being a part of the community, I'm sort of like, I don't know. I don't want to get anything wrong. I don't want to, you know, upset anyone. And I thought, you know, but in the, in the interest of diversity, I mean, yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah, because I have a character in um, the last book in my book magic series, the Pip and Lane Hawthorne series, and she's part of that community. And, you know, I, I think we have to be careful not to just throw these characters in gratuitously, you know, mm -hmm. just so we can say, oh, I have represented this, you know, this subgroup or whatever in my um in my books, but to do it, you know, with intention and respectfully. Right. And, you know, I think that from our personal experiences, you know, we, we maybe have that respect a little bit ingrained in us. And my, I have a nephew who's transgender and I, you know, what I have learned from him and from his mom and, and their, you know, their entire experience changed the way I, or I didn't change the way, but rather, just enlightened me, you know, it like peeled back the layers of so much that is, you know, somebody that's transgender has to go through and then the parent, you know? So I, I just feel like we have to be really respectful and careful. Exactly. And, and not just, um, you know, throw in these characters just to say, we have a diverse cast, but to, right. you know, to recognize the, the, and, and, you know, if we have a diverse cast, bring that culture in, in some way, you know, and honor it. Right. Which is what I've tried to do in my bread shop book. Cause I, I have some diverse characters in there, you know, from different cultures and countries and, and it's always about, you know, honoring whatever it is they bring to the table. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's, it can also be um, education without beating people up over the head, you know, cozy mm -hmm. mysteries, we can, um, they tend to be lighter, more mm -hmm. humorous, yet we will include subjects that are important and 
heavier. It's but we're also mindful of what we're doing. So ultimately, we are writing mysteries. We are writing cozy mysteries, and that has to be the focus. There are other things that we may incorporate. I can tell you that, you know, with my mystery bookshop series, where I have the story, the British historic cozy mystery that my main character is writing, it takes place at the start of World War II. And so there are elements of um, what happened, and I want to always be respectful of that of that whole experience and I did not want in any way to make it seem that I am taking it lightly but I'm also writing a cozy mystery so that balance is something that you need to make sure that you incorporate and you never forget that the first and foremost you're writing a mystery or you're writing a romance or whatever it is that you're writing and then be respectful of any diverse characters, any um, other elements. I have, um, I wrote, um, there's a character that I love in, in my book that I actually took from a real person, right? So in that book, I have a spy. There's a spy um, that, really existed. I read this story and I just fell in love with this, with this character. She was a, um, an American who at, she had, um, her grandparents, I think were French. And so at the start of World War II and, um, everything that happened, she goes to France and she becomes a spy to help the, um, allies. And she had one leg. She was in an accident and she lost you know, her leg. And it, you know, to me, she seemed like she would be someone who was fun because Mm -hmm. she had a wooden leg and she called it Cuthbert. And so So I thought good, uh, good sense of humor and just, yeah, (laughs) well-adjusted. But she was so um, good at what she did that at one point the Nazis had put a price on her head wanted dead or alive and she had to flee France and in order to get out of the country she had to walk like she had to get off all the trains because they were looking for her and she was looking for the woman with the wooden leg exactly (laughs) and so they're not expecting her to climb over a mountain right like you know sound of music you know we're gonna (laughs) climb every mountain she did and she got out of the country and came back and then continued to work. And, um, you know, she wasn't caught or killed by the, you know, by the Nazis. But I, you know, I worried about, you know, I don't want anybody to think I'm being insensitive about a woman with one leg, but she's the one who called it Cuthbert. I'm not <laughs> the, that was, I just took that from, from the, you know, her story. And that's when you write a little foreword in your book <laughs> explaining all of that, you know, and the liberties that you've taken. Yeah, my new series that I'm working on that my agent's going to be pitching soon is based, you know, the entire concept is based on a woman named Biddy Early, who was the last woman tried for witchcraft in Ireland in oh, like wow. the mid 1800s. And, you know, so I'm, I'm her, the whole family that I've created are her descendants. Yeah. You know, and so same idea that you just want to, you know, 
honor or respect the lives of the real people that you're representing. You know, I've talked with Heather Redman, who writes the Charles Dickens mystery series and, mm-hmm. you know, same, same idea, you know, she's using this real person and, and has to be authentic historically, but then also to who he was, you know, to the best of her ability. So yeah. there are so many balls that we juggle as yeah. authors, depending on, you know, what type of thing we're writing. Exactly. And I think that, you know, it's, it's very easy to, you know, look at a book with a dog or a cat on the cover and think, oh, well, this is lightweight. This author didn't do any work. No, you have to do your research. You have to do your work because readers will email you and they will tell you everything that you get wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I got an email from someone, I think, in one of my um, dog club mystery series. And the guy said, you know, you know dogs and you know mystery, but you don't know a thing about cars. <laughs> because I had gotten the um, name of the car, you know, the make wrong. And so I was like. Hey. Yeah, that happened to me, too. I, I had a Volvo something or other. I don't remember in um, in my bread shop series. You know, talk about it very briefly. And it was the color. I had gotten the color wrong. That color wasn't around in that year. Oh my <laughs> so, gosh. And, and a reader emailed me, you know, to make sure that I knew. <laughs> so yeah. Much. So when you reprint that book, you're going to change the yeah. color of, of the car. Yeah. And I'm thinking, you know, it's, it, it's amazing to me too, how many things, you know, get past, you know, as many times as we as authors review our books and read it and reread it and reread it. And then you give it to someone else to read and reread and they didn't catch it. And then, you you know, especially with like my, um, the plot is murder because it was the first book. I reviewed that like five times and then I sent it to a friend who edited it and she reviewed it. And then I sent it to my agent who edited it. And then I sent it to my editor who edited it and then it went to a copy editor and then it goes to your, you know, production editor for galleys and we all missed, <laughs> you know, we missed it. Yeah. Yeah. I just talked recently with Nancy <laughs> and it's so funny because she uh, has a new series. I think it's the new series she was talking about that she set in a Virginia town, I guess. And uh, it was, you know, same thing. All of these people read it. All of these people edited it. And it was the copy editor who said, did you know that that's the same town that all the Friday the 13th yes. <laughs> <laughs> place in? And they're like, oh my gosh, we cannot have a light, you know, romancy kind of a series taking place in the Friday the 13th. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a problem. I don't think yeah, anybody gonna... caught it until that one reader. Yeah. You know, I have my the dogs that are on the cover of my mystery bookshop series, those were my dogs. Um, They're both passed now, but um, Coco and Cash were their names in the book. They're Snickers and Oreo. And Oreo is, was the male um, cash. And I was reviewing um, edits on a book. And I realized um, when we got to, like the galleys and I'm reading this through for like the very last time that you can make any changes. And I realized that at some point I stopped calling that dog Oreo and I called him cash. And I, (laughs) I think that my editor, he knows they were my dogs and he knows what my dog's names were. 
and I, I he missed it. <laughs> we all missed it, but thankfully I caught it right then. And then I go back and do a search and replace and make sure. Yeah. But yeah, it's just it's amazing how. And I also turned in a a, a draft, and my editor's like, "You realize that this character is the name of a real author that we have at Kensington. You're gonna need to change that." I'm like. I had no idea. Well, you can't know everything. I mean, come on. (laughs) (laughs) That's, but that goes to show you that, uh, you know, we are just so close to our own writing in so many ways that it's very hard to spot those things. That's why you need an editor. That's why you need copy editors. You need these other people because hopefully at some point somebody will, you know, discover or realize whatever it is. Before it gets to the reader. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so if we had to kind of sum up our conversation about uh, creating diversity in our books or writing diverse characters, do you have just a, 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 so let me back up a second. So you write four different series with black protagonists. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. So you're kind of part of a small ish group in the cozy mystery genre, would you say? And even in. Oh, yeah. You know, even in publishing, I would say, and even in, I mean, you're part of the crime, uh, what's the name of the organization? Crime, crime Writers of Color. of Color. You know, so so it's, you know, it's a small group. So I know you started by saying you're not necessarily an expert, and yet you, you know, you, what you write, it's breaking down doors for people, right? It's, it's helping to diversify, not only our genre, but, you know, publishing in general. So, so coming from that sort of perspective, could you kind of sum up a couple of tips for people, you know, who want to, you know, continue that good work, basically, you know? Yeah, I guess I would say, make sure that you um, do your research, Mm -hmm. make sure that you are respectful of the culture and the community, and make sure you try to try to gain understanding. So, um, so that you, I, I think we all come at things from our own lens and sometimes you may think that people do things a certain way because of your background or your history or, or whatever, but you might want to just check and make sure. And, you know, I'll, I'll share that recently my sister and I were having a conversation with my niece and you know, and there's something that in the um, in one of my books I wrote that older black women, um, it's a sign of respect that you call them by their last name. Um, I asked, I actually asked my my niece, um, and she has um, she's my niece obviously is black, my her husband is not, and I asked her what does he call my sister, right? My sister's mm-hmm. husband called my parents Mr. and Mrs. Burns. They were married for 27 years before he died. And the whole life it was Mr. and Mrs. Burns. And I said, you know, just out of curiosity, I don't remember hearing, you know, Drew mention, you know, call my sister by name. I said, what does he call her? And she's like, well, he really doesn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we talked about, you know, how it's, we were raised that for um, 
anyone who was older than us, for older black people, when she was sharing that at the school that she works in, um, there was an older man and she calls him Mr. You know, Smith or, you know, Mrs. Jones, because they were older and they were like, oh, no, just call me, you know, Nancy or Mary or or John. And that's not what we were raised to do. You know, if someone was older, you called them. And it was really considered a sign of disrespect to call Mm -hmm. an older person by their first name. And and I don't think that's specifically a cultural thing, because I was raised the same way. And my, you know, I'm 50 six now. (laughs) And my aunt is, you know, in her late seventies and I still call her aunt Judy. I can't not call her aunt Judy, you know, maybe to my mom when we're just talking about it. But even then, you know, and I have an uncle Chuck and it's always uncle Chuck and it always will be uncle Chuck, you know, and my kids with their aunts and uncles, it's Theo Ugo, it's Theo Abel, it's Tia Soli, it's Tia Gloria, it's Tia Teresa. It's all, you know, they're always, it's just part of it's their name you know it's just who they are and it is that you know that generational respect yeah so I think it's generational I think some of it may be culture and and, you know my sister and I come at it from the standpoint of you know um, you know when you think about you know slavery in the United States and how black women were treated and and whatever but I think also I noticed difference from I grew up in the Midwest I now live in the South in Georgia. And I also noticed those difference regionally within the country, that there are things that I have people who are younger than me at work, who call me Miss Valerie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I recognize that it was the way they were raised. Yeah, that they refer to, um, you know, an older person by their, you know, with a with a title. And, you know, even if it's not, you know, Miss Burns, then it's Miss Valerie. And and so I think it's just a matter of making sure you do your research mm-hmm. and understand that it can come from different perspectives. So don't assume. Right. Check around and do plenty of research and talk to people and, and gain insight and don't be too... Um, closed-minded, right? You want to be open-minded so that if someone tells you something, oh no, that's not possible. You know, that's not it. Because I talked to, you know, Mary and she said it was perfectly okay to say it. Well, it might've been okay for Mary. It might've been okay Mm -hmm. for Mary living in the Midwest. But if people could be offended, you don't want to go there. Right, right. And then I think also it's recognizing that you have a culture, but within that, or a race, but within that race or that culture, there is so many, they, people come from so many different places. Right? I grew up on the West Coast. Everybody was Mexican or, you know, coming from South America. Here in North Carolina, it's Puerto Rican, it's Dominican Republic, it's um, Ecuadorian. You know, one of my good, good friends here is Puerto Rican Ecuadorian. It, it, so culturally, I mean, like regionally, yeah. right? Those those are uh, differences. You can't, you can't just group everything. My son uh, dated for a long time uh, and they were engaged and sadly that ended. But um, a black girl who whose family is Jamaican, her parents are Jamaican. And so she was like, I'm not African-American. Don't call me, right. you know, she's not, she's not saying that to us, but she's like, 
you know, just in general, like that is not, that's not my experience, right? Right. I am from the Caribbean. That that is my family's experience. So you can't just assume that because a person looks a certain way or or you know whatever that they have all have the same shared experience exactly. or shared history. Exactly. Yeah. No, that you hit the nail right on the head. I saw an interview that um, um, Lynn Manuel did, and he talked about the um, how hard it is. You know, you try to to classify um, so many different groups of people with one label. Yeah. And, you know, he's like, it doesn't offend me to have the Latinx, you know, category, but that's like 30 or 60 countries or whatever involved in that one word that you're trying to group so many different people. So you can't assume that, you know, the Mexican experience is the same as the Mexican American experience, which is the same as the, you know, Puerto Rican experience or, you know, just. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's so funny because my husband, first generation Mexican American, his parents immigrated here. His dad was part of the Bracero program. So he is a migrant worker. And, uh, you know, my husband, Spanish was his first language until all, for all, he's one of seven, all of them, uh, until they entered school. And that's when they started to learn English. And, um, you know, he, he's fairer skinned, you know, there's kind of a range in his family, but he's, um, you know, on the fair skinned side of things, I guess. But also like his parents had a different perspective about education. And so he has cousins that he grew up with that were more like the Cholos, you know, with the, with the flannels and the bandanas and that whole thing. And, and my husband was trying to figure out his identity, you know, so he tried kind of that on for size and he wasn't Mexican enough for that, you know, and, but he wasn't white enough to be white. So it's, it's, I think you, my, my daughter's going through this right now, actually to a great degree. And so her field actually that she's getting her degree in is, um, well, it's kind of, she's creating it herself, but it's essentially, it's equity. It's racial studies and equity. And, you know, she's searching for her identity. So you have to recognize that, that too, that, you know, that every person's experience is different and they don't fit into their own boxes, you know? So, I mean, there's so many layers and I just think that, I think it's wonderful to try and make sure that we are doing service to that in our books, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, that, that do it well, you know, <laughs> each other. So I appreciate the conversation because I think it's so important. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's, it's just very hard. It really it is. is because it so is and- so vast and there's no one right answer. Right. Yes. Right. So yeah, well, your tips are excellent. And, and I think bottom line is do your research and try to understand, you yes. know, you try to understand on as many levels as you can to be authentic and move away from stereotypes, Exactly. you know, because those are always wrong. <laughs> and they're going to get you in trouble. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, so tell me, what do you have coming up next? So you've got your brand new series coming out. Yes. No, uh, it came out, it came out in August, the first book. Um, and, um, the eighth book in my mystery bookshop series comes out in just a few weeks. Um, and I actually am doing a third series with, um, 
Berkeley. So it's it's a new series and it will feature a bloodhound. So my thing is dogs. I love dogs. So there's always going to be a dog somewhere in my books. And so in the Baker Street Mystery Series, I had a, a English Mastiff. And in my new series, um, a Bailey the Bloodhound Mystery, I think is what the series is going to be called. So Fun. if, um, yeah, I, I think that will release sometime next year. So um, those will be the three series. I'm going to maintain three series. I, I actually will have five altogether, but I've ended one. I have one more book in my RJ Franklin series, mm -hmm. and uh, that will probably release sometime next year also. And then I'll just have my Baker Street Mystery, my Mystery Bookshop series, and my new Bailey the Bloodhound Mystery series. So just going to have those. Just the three <laughs> series. <Perfect. laughs> That's quite a lot to juggle. Plus, it you know, is. your, your uh, Seton job. Hill, and your yeah, and I got a full-time job because we need insurance. So it's, um, you know, it's, I stay busy, but I think uh, my other tip, I guess, for writers is know you and know what works for you. There is no one, um, no one stop, no one should thing fits all, you know, one size does not fit all. What yeah. works for one person doesn't always work for others. I know me and I know if I don't write every day, I won't write for months and that can Jesus, be a problem. Out of the habit. Yeah. Yeah. I can find 5 million other things to do. I will watch TV. I will play Wordle. I will play every computer game I can. I will play with the poodles. I will find something to do or just, you know, get lost on the internet. But if I write every day, I get in the habit of writing and that's what works for me. So I have to keep going. But after about three to four months, I'm really sick of these characters in my head. Yeah. So I need to move on. So I have to. And, and I also know if I gave myself a year to finish one book, I would spend a year working on like the first chapter. I would write that chapter and rewrite that chapter and rewrite that chapter over and over and over again, and I would never let it go. And so having a deadline forces me to let it go. It's good enough for now, mm -hmm. and then I can move on to something else without getting in out of the habit of writing. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're that person that you need to, you know, write and rewrite a sentence, then do you. This is what works for me, but it yeah. doesn't work for everybody. I have a friend, Kelly Garrett. She is she is meticulous and she plots everything out, every beat, every, you know, just everything. And she takes a year, maybe longer to write a book. And I would be so sick of that book. And, yeah. you know, if I had to spend that much time in it but it's what works for her and she's been very successful at it. So I think the key is figuring out what works for you and doing that. Yeah, I agree. That's a theme that has come up quite a bit on this podcast in varying t subjects, you know, whether it's plotting or pantsing or, you know, what, whatever it is that there is 
not just, there's not a right way and there's not only one way. And, and don't force yourself to try and do it somebody else's way. I've yeah. done that and it, it never works. No. Right. And, and I feel frustrated and I'm beating myself up because I'm like, I couldn't, I couldn't plot, you know, the way that such and such plots, but you know, it's just not my way. Mm-hmm. And you just have to accept that. And 29 books later, it's okay. That's right. That's okay. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you again so much for being here. This was a wonderful conversation. And no, I, really I enjoyed myself. It. Thank you so much for having me and chatting with me. I always enjoy our conversations. So thank you. I do too. I do too. Y'all, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you're like me and like bookish things, check out the Writer Spark Tea Public Store. Please remember to like and subscribe to this podcast. And if you like YouTube, you can check us out there as well and subscribe. Come back for more tips and tricks about fiction writing and learn more about our online courses at www.writersparkacademy.com. I'm Melissa Bourbon. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, happy writing.